politicians are the virus. Yeah, man, maybe I am dumb. You think you're free? You think you're free just because you can't see the cage they keep you in? Fauci jerked off a pangolin, and now we all have COVID. It's us against them, guys. Get out there and spread that love and liberty. Let's go. How you guys doing today? Thank you for joining The Dad Presents. Appreciate you. Guys, do you appreciate me? Do you like me at all? Do you? If you do, why haven't you yet shared this show with your friends and your people? Stop what you're doing. Share the show. I mean, do you want them to be running around town all uninformed? And then after you share the show, please swing by YouTube and click subscribe. I mean, this show is killing it on Spotify, but we're stinking up the joint on YouTube and you guys aren't helping. And I know why. I know it's because I have this big, giant, ugly nose and you guys are shallow. I get it. And that's fine. I get it. I mean, hey, I like pretty people too, you know, but guess what? Today, to counter this ugly face with this big face hog, we're going to have on the beautiful Hannah Cox, and you're going to want to soak that in with your eye sockets. So get on over to YouTube and click subscribe. And then after you do that, head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. And if you do that for me, next week, I will read your review on the air. And after that, I might come over to your house and do something nice like cook your breakfast or maybe make your bed. And I've not even made my own bed since high school. So that'll show how appreciative I really am. Now, guys, if you're watching this show on YouTube, check it out behind me. How do you like this new background? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm trying out something new. I'm trying to do new things. Just mix it up a little bit. Keep you guys on your toes. Just have a little fun. Most of my ideas are garbage and you probably hate it. Let me know. I don't know. Whatever. Wanted to try it. So we're going to get into the interview in a little, in a minute or two, but you know, let's catch up on the world. What's going on. Well, you know, recently we've heard about that sexy swimmer, Leah Thomas, right? I just finally, for the first time, took the time to look this chick up and wow, dude is yoked. Leah Thomas is yoked. Like I could not take this girl in a fight. And not only is she yoked, but you can see her little Willy Wonka in her little swimmy suit. So look, man, good for Leah. Good for her. I hope she's happy. I'm glad she's winning. I hope she's getting all the attention she wants. Whatever it is she wants, I hope she's getting it and I hope she's better for it. And look, I will call you by your lady name all day and all night. I'll even hold the door open for you like a real gentleman. But here's the rules. You cannot be competing against my niece in a swimming competition if you ain't got no boo-boos. Okay? That shit ain't fair. No boo-boos, no compete. You can't compete against my friend Dave's daughter, Elizabeth, if you ain't got a peeper, okay? You want to swim against the ladies, then you got to get the whole hog, get it chopped, go all out. Those are the rules. You got it? But overall, look, people have been making a big deal about this the past couple of days, and then the, the nomination of uh, Kentaji Jackson Brown for Supreme Court asking her to define a woman. And it's all really silly nonsense. I don't know what a woman is. We don't have any rules anymore. But the point is, who cares? Why do you guys care so much? Do you guys know we might be entering World War III pretty soon? Russia's mad at Ukraine. We're mad at Russia. China's mad at Taiwan. Israel's hating on Palestine. India's joining up with Russia. Saudi Arabia won't give us no more nookie. And they're pissed at Iran. We may be entering a nuclear war and the whole world is caught up on Leah Thomas's peeper. Let's let's move on and, and, and focus on the prize and the important stuff. Humanity legitimately could be wiped out by this time next year. This shit could get nu- nuclear. That could actually happen. The world could end any day. And y'all are talking about Boys competing in girls swimming competitions, just not that important. We can circle back to that one after we handle this World War III business. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I know it's unfair. It's unfair that that super strong former dude, now girl, Leah Thomas can compete against other girls. It's not fair. It is not fair to the girls at all. And that's why I said the rule, if you're going to do that, you got to cut the peeper off. You got to go whole hog. You got to commit to being a woman, but you know what else is unfair? Catching a Russian nuke in the face. 
that's unfair. So let's get some perspective. Let's focus a little bit and let's push back against these psychotic warmongers like Lindsey Graham and Liz Cheney and Joe Biden before they end the world. Let's just have a little perspective, okay? You know what else is out is uh, the New York Times now, they're admitting that Hunter Biden is in fact a crackhead who lost his computer with evidence on it that he and his dad were on the take from the Ukraine and Russia and China. I mean, they didn't word it exactly like that, but that's the basic gist. He's a crackhead and he was taking money from these countries who are, for all purposes, our enemies. These dudes don't care about you. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Kentaji Jackson Brown, none of these people care about you. All they care about is power and money. And we've entrusted them with control of the world. And now they're going to burn it down. And yeah, again, one more time. This is about the fifth time. The New York Times is more than a year behind the Dad Presents. And you might ask yourself, why? Why does the Dad Presents keep getting it right? And the New York Times keeps getting it wrong. How does that keep happening? Aren't they the biggest, most powerful, wealthiest paper in the world? How can, how can little old Matt on the Dad Presents keep getting it right when they get it wrong? Does the Dad Presents have more sources than the New York Times? No, man, I don't. Not even close. Is the Dad Presents smarter than the New York Times? Yeah. Yeah, probably. I probably am. I definitely am. I am. But that's not the difference. The reason I get it right and they get it wrong is because I care about truth and they care about a narrative. That's the whole thing. I care about the truth. I seek the truth. I ask questions. I'm open to the truth. I'm open to both sides and they have a narrative. And if the truth doesn't fit the narrative, they're going to manipulate the truth and wedge it into that narrative to make sure it fits. So look, this is literally the fifth or sixth time going back to COVID. And, and now the seventh time is going to be this war because they're pushing this war narrative. So here's the new rule. Okay. Rule number one from this show, dudes got to get rid of the Willy Wonka if they want to compete with the girls. That's rule number one. Rule number two, and more importantly, you guys are no longer permitted to get your news from the New York Times or CNN or Fox News or any of those places. For now on, when you want to know what the hell is going on in the world, come to me. Come to me. I'll tell you. I'm never going to lie to you. I have never lied to you. I have never lied to you. I will never lie to you. I've been banned half a dozen times for telling the truth. I won't lie to you. And if I don't know something, I'll just straight up say, I don't fucking know. I don't know a lot of things. And then I'll find somebody who does know and who is trustworthy. I'll get the answers from them for you because truth is important. Truth is important. And that's why when we get rid of this war situation, we will circle back to the transgender thing. And we will actually come up with a definition for what a woman is, because that's the question that's been floated out there recently. Nobody can seem to define it. Well, words need definitions. We need rules to words or else the words mean nothing. And how can we communicate with each other? But we'll get back to that one. Let's focus right now on this war situation. Because what I know right now is that war is really bad for you and really great for those elites. And if this thing escalates, if, if, if we ramp it up more to where we're sending troops, it's going to be really, really great for them and really, really bad for you. Because it's going to be your kids are, who are going to be the ones over there fighting, not their kids. And if it gets to the point where it gets nuclear, well, you're all going to be dead and they'll probably be in a spaceship flying to Mars to restart civilization. So let's not stand for it. Let's not let it get there, guys. Okay. Open your eyes. Stop believing the propaganda the government puts out. All right. Let's get into the show. Guys, we are joined by a fierce and powerful libertarian writer and podcaster who hosts Based Politics with Brad Palumbo. She played a huge role in getting the death penalty overturned in three states. She's helped pass school choice laws and gotten income tax laws overturned. She's the brand ambassador for the Foundation of Economic Education. Hannah Cox, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Excited to have you. Uh, it's been a good week here. We just had Ron Paul. Now you. It's wow. good things happening. 
Um, so let, let's talk about follow for me. No, well, I, I think you're up for the job. Um, so you got the death penalty overturned in three states. I learned that from you at the convention, and that's incredible. You're 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 a young lady. Um, you've gotten a lot accomplished at a young age. You're you're a writer. You're a podcaster, like myself. But unlike myself, you get some real world shit done. Um, how? How are you doing this? <laughs> well, it's been over the course of quite a few years. Um, so I really got into politics full time in 2016. And I kicked off my work actually working at the state level for a free market think tank on the ground. So I've, I've kind of worn a few hats since getting into politics. Now I'm more in media and I'm writing and commentating. So I did not do it all at once, to be clear. Um, but I started off doing a lot of organizing at the grassroots level, building coalitions and working alongside others at my think tank. Um, I always think it's important to say I got none of these things done alone. It's always been with great teams around me and, and really tremendous coalitions. But that gave me the opportunity to work on a lot of issues and to get really familiar with public policy. I think before that point, I, I knew what I believed and sort of the general principles I wanted to see in a political system, but I didn't always know the precise policies that would get there. And so getting to work at the state level really introduced me to things like education savings accounts if you want to break the public school system or corporate welfare reform if you want to get rid of a lot of the cronyism in our system. And so that was a really great advantage. And then through the course of that work, and also just because I've, I've loved Rand Paul for a long time, I was becoming really interested in criminal justice reform, especially, and that wasn't something that organization was doing. So I was kind of shaking the trees like, hey, we need to get involved in this. And we started doing a little bit of what I would call like low hanging fruit reform. So reentry, workforce development. Um, but at the same time, I had always been involved with NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they were doing some bigger picture criminal justice reform around the death penalty. And so they first asked me to do a bill on the side in Tennessee that would exclude people with severe mental illness from the death penalty. And that was the first like mm. what I would say big picture criminal justice reform issue I worked on. Yeah, because you, you weren't always against the death penalty was it was it was it that one was it mental illness is that the one that kind of changed your mind a little bit like where where did you change your mind in your position on the death penalty yeah they, they're the people who got me they got to me and um it was because i'd been working with them for a while and, and they most mental health organizations tend to be more left-wing you know it's kind of what you would anticipate they want to see things like Medicare expansion and a lot more public dollars spent on mental health. I got involved because I also care a lot about mental health care, but I don't want to see lots of public dollars spent on mental health and I don't want to see mm -hmm. Medicare expansion. And so I was trying to figure out like, what are the things we can do as a society that would actually move the needle on these issues that are in line with my beliefs. Um, but through the course of that, I became really good friends with a lot of the people who worked there. And so when they first approached me about this issue, I was very pro death penalty. I initially told them no, uh, that I supported the death penalty. And they said, for people with severe mental illness, I was like, yeah, like, I don't think that's an excuse. I just, right. <laughs> I really didn't know anything about it. I grew up in a very Southern, my dad's a Southern Baptist minister. I grew up in a very like fire and brimstone kind of house. And I, and I just held all the false perceptions about the death penalty that I think most people have, you know, I thought it made you safer. I thought it saved money. I thought if I were a victim to my member that I would want it on and on the list goes. Um, and the way that they kind of moved me on that was really gently, but they just said, you know, you're the, you hate government more than anybody we've ever right. met. What do you, you don't think the government can deliver the mail, but you think it gets it right in the criminal justice system. And that just <laughs> blew my mind, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so they gave me a lot of research and materials and I went home and I just spent an entire weekend really like digging into the data on it. And the, the numbers move me. I'm a numbers person. I've always said, like, I believe in capitalism. I believe in limited government. I believe in individual liberty because all the proof is in the pudding. Every bit of data backs these views up. And, and the same is mm -hmm. true when it comes to death penalty. Every argument out there actually backs up an anti-death penalty worldview when you really break it down. Well, yeah. Once, well, first of all, that, that's awesome. Like, they gave you stuff. You took it. You read it. You considered your opinion. And you change your mind like that never happens in the world <laughs> anymore today. That never happens. So kudos to you for like recognizing it and being open to different ideas. But yeah, once once you recognize that, hey, the state fucks it up, like they've executed people who are innocent. We know that for a fact, like it's hard to get behind being for the death penalty, like throw them in jail for life, but give them a chance to, to prove their innocence. Um, it happens far too often. And yeah. Everything the government touches, we know, turns to shit. We, we saw it with COVID. We're seeing it again with this Ukraine situation. 
why would we think they're going to be the best at finding the bad guy and properly punishing the bad guy? They're not. They're just not. They never. They don't. They don't get it right. Is there any situation where you do think the death penalty is justified? Yeah, I don't. I mean, yes. In a theoretical world, I'm sure we could point to many situations where we would say like this is justified. And I, I feel like for me, I did not change my mind on the death penalty from like a human ethics standpoint. Some people have, and some people come at it from that point of view. But for me, it's always been really a matter of practicality that we do kill innocent people, that we do spend at least a million dollars more per case than we do on life in prison without parole. Uh, That's money that doesn't go towards actually solving more crimes. Ipso facto, the death penalty actually makes us less safe. Um, Mm -hmm. I've worked around enough victims, family members to know that this is not a system that most of them want or feel that it benefits them. It actually can cause further trauma to many of them. Um, I also know that the way the death penalty is allocated, um, and this is something that I think is really key to know. The death penalty was stopped in this country in the early 1970s. The Supreme Court outlawed it for a period of years, and that was because it was found to violate the Eighth Amendment's um, provisions against cruel and unusual punishment, not because it was found to be cruel, but because it was so arbitrary, it was so randomly applied that it was unusual in nature. And so the judges wrote it was as unusual as being struck by lightning. It therefore Mm. violated the Eighth Amendment. And um, it was because it was being assigned mostly on grounds of race um, and then just really randomly. And so they outlawed it. But what happened is the states were then able to come in and put in all of these like mitigating and aggravating factors that were supposed to ensure moving forward, it was no longer allocated in that way and that it was actually applied equally and evenly. But we've now had, you know, since it was reinstated in the late 1970s, you know, 40, 50 years worth of data to go and look at how it's been applied. And it's applied in the exact same way. The number one determinant for who gets the death penalty is the county where the crime is committed. Um, Only 2% of counties bring the majority of death penalty cases. To date, since reinstatement, every execution has come from less than 16% of counties. So you can look at a state and have a crime that looks like this here in this county, an identical crime over here in this county, and this person might get the death penalty just by nature of where the crime is, and this one won't even get life in prison without parole. It's just so random. And then the secondary factors are uh, the socioeconomic status of the defendant, can you afford a private attorney, and the race of the victim. It's mostly applied to people who kill white victims. And so um, even if I were to say, like, yes, there might be a case over here where theoretically this person deserves it, you don't get to have this system where it's only when we know it's definitely somebody who's guilty and only for the quote, quote, worst of the worst. That's not how it functions. Government's not capable of allocating in that way. And in order to endorse it for this one heinous crime, whatever you think the worst, the worst is, you have to accept all this other baggage that comes with it, which I'm just not willing to do. Yeah. Well, like you said, you're not necessarily coming at it from an ethical point of view. It's just, it's not been effective. It's not been fair. It's not, it's not saved us money. It's not cut down on crime. It's not made the victims feel better. It's not really done any good. Like if something does no good, something government does, does no good. You got to re reevaluate. It's just, it's not working. Um, so I want, I want to shift gear. I saw you at the, the libertarian convention, as I, as I mentioned before we started, um, I didn't introduce myself because I'm afraid of attractive women, but in, <laughs> in your speech, you mentioned the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And you made a really compelling case about this book. I've never read the book. So I went out right after I got it and I've been right. reading it. Um, I still don't have any friends, so I, I'm not sure it works, <laughs> but it makes great points about the ideas of like empathy and appreciation and how we communicate. Um, so here's what I want to ask you is people have come around on the libertarian idea that lockdowns were bad, right? We, we were saying that two years ago and we got beat up for it. And now everybody kind of agrees with that. But now we're entering a war that we shouldn't be. And the same people who were supporting the lockdown are now like pro-war, like we should be doing more. We should be doing no fly zones. We should be, we got to stick it to them. And I know from life experience, and I also know from this book that people hate, I told you so's, I told you so's don't work. They don't convince anybody. All they do is piss people off. So the question is, how do you get people to listen to you now about this, about the war situation and use the credibility of, Hey, look, I got the lockdowns, right? Maybe you should listen to me. Like, how do you, how do you do that without putting them off with, then I told you so. 
I think the best thing we can do when it comes to war is tell stories and continue to point to other times where libertarians have been right about foreign policy. So that, that way we're not saying, you know, we told you, we've been telling, we've been telling you. And so we're saying, hey, remember when this happened? And then the blowback was this. And then remember when this happened and, and the cause of it was actually this. Really helping people illustrate and connect those dots, I think, is so key because the average person is so removed from our foreign policy. I think it's something that we care so much about, libertarians are really invested in. I, I know for a lot of people, especially like the old guard libertarians, this is their top issue. And, and they're still just really yeah. radicalized on it because they come from an era where you didn't get to be anti-war, right? Where you were considered like a deadbeat and somebody who hated the troops. And it was just like a third mm-hmm. rail thing to even suggest that the U.S. was culpable for some of these issues that happened well, you overseas. Say com- you say coming from an era like that, it feels like we're still in that era. Like that's what they're calling people now who are, are against this war. They're calling them un- unpatriotic, anti-American. It's all the same stuff. I think to a lesser extent, though, you now have very mainstream people, both within the GOP and the Libertarian Party, who do speak out against this. I'm no fan of Tucker Carlson, but I mean, he's a perfect example, right? Like he is the top person on Fox News and he's very anti-war. You have people like Glenn Greenwald who are very anti-war on the left. I don't I don't feel like it's quite the same as back when Ron Paul kind of, you know, threw shots on stage in the debates back in the GOP and people were just aghast. He would even suggest this. There might be some elements, but increasingly, I feel like we're seeing actually neocons really get pushed out of the GOP and really have um, the the popularity of, of the tides turning against them. People like Lindsey Graham and Adam Kingsinger, he's not even running again. You know, they're, they're increasingly finding themselves isolated. Liz Cheney is a total uh, vapor or viper in the party they hate her gut. So I, I think mm. that we are seeing a shift, but definitely we do still see a media that's very pro-war. We do still see the military industrial complex, which has deep financial ties to both parties, continuing to try to beat the war drums. And I think the problem that we face right now is that the they are very good with using stories and using people to really hone in and build a sympathetic case for Ukraine. I've seen this on TikTok and I've, I've even written yeah, about oh this God. because it's yeah. compelling. You see Zelensky and he's, he's there with his troops. He's saying, you know, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And, and we just need a no fly zone. And for the average American, they think, well, what is that to us? A no fly zone. That sounds easy enough. Let's do it. And they just don't understand how you get into war, what has led up to the wars in the past. And for so many decades, the wars that we've been involved in have not been um, on our home shores. And the average person is not in the military or even those people in the military have really two different, like, societies of people. And so I think what we have to do is do a much better job of accurately telling those stories of talking about the buildup to where we got right now with Ukraine and Russia, even for me, um, I'm not an expert in in foreign policy. And so I had to really sit back and go do my digging and figure out what happened in Ukraine leading up to this? What was our involvement? Why is Putin doing this? And, And really try to understand like all of those various chess moves that got us here to really understand like, um, what we've done that has caused this and how us getting involved further would actually make it worse. Now I'm anti-war period. I don't ever believe in intervention unless we are solely going to protect our people and our homeland. There's an actual existential threat. I don't think that's been the case since world war II. Um, And I don't think it's the case now in Russia and Ukraine. And I think we need to make sure that we continue to elevate. This is one thing I actually liked about Trump's presidency. I don't think he lived up to it, but his notion that America should come first, that our resources should stay here, that we shouldn't send Americans to die for other people's causes or conflicts. And that really, when you look at this country right now, we're not doing so great. We really have a large number of issues here at home. Why would we ever think we can go solve issues overseas when we can't clean up our own backyard? Yeah, I don't I don't even necessarily think the people pushing this war think we can make a difference. I just think it's a it's a racket for them. Now, you mentioned TikTok. Like I started seeing some of that. I was, my mind was blown. And then you hear that the White House is instructing TikTok people, like popular TikTok accounts, how to talk about the war. Like the alarm bells should be going off in your head about propaganda. Um, I'm just, I'm very disappointed in people my age. I'm a little older than you. I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I lived, I, yeah, I was in my 20s in 2001. I lived through that. We learned the government was lying to us. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Everybody my age, most people, I, I wasn't fooled. I'm going to do an I told you so here. I didn't get fooled, but almost everybody I know was fooled. They learned. They now agree that we should not have gone into those wars. And now here we are again, and they're just back on the rah-rah train. And it's very disappointing to me that that people my age did not learn from what we lived. Um, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. 
and you, and you you quantify that by saying you're you're not a big fan and that's kind of what we have to do as libertarians i've become a fan of tucker carlson whereas 5 years ago i would have said he's a monster um he got covid right he nailed it he was the only one brave enough to talk about it and now he's getting the war right so he seems to be like an asset a, a mainstream asset for libertarian points of view without actually calling himself a libertarian um what what okay yemen right this is a perfect example we have a genocide going on in yemen that our government is participating in you don't hear boo about it nobody cares about it nobody has a yemen flag as their profile pick um we are at risk of you, you say we should only engage in war if we're protecting our people here we could be pressing the situation where that's what's happening like this could lead to nuclear war do you think people understand the ramifications. I, I saw you posted a poll that 85% of people believe the Russian sanctions were good and 35% support military action, even if it could lead to nuclear war. Do, are people not getting it in your opinion? No, I don't think they get it. Again, I think war has been so removed and, and I'll put myself in this camp and, and I want to circle back to one thing you said, which is like, how do we, how do we adequately change people's minds? And one point in Dale Carnegie's book is to bring up times you were wrong in the past. So I'll do it. Like I was a big neocon, like huge neocon warmonger throughout early college and, and my early twenties. That was just the kind of household I was raised in. And again, I believed a lot of really false things about it. I thought that we never lost wars. I thought that it made us safer. I thought that we were spreading capitalism and democracy everywhere we mm -hmm. went and all this, all this bogus. Um, and so being able to talk about those times you were wrong, what you've learned from those lessons, I think it's key being able to highlight how the U.S. continues to get involved in other conflicts, and especially Russia-Ukraine, to talk about what the U.S. has been doing there. It's been kind of a proxy thing for us for some time and how this has escalated and now Putin's getting a bit desperate. He's kind of like a dog who's been backed into a corner to some extent, yeah. thanks to the actions of the U.S. and NATO. And so we, I think we really have to help people understand that history and then help them understand that things like a no-fly zone, what that actually means is war because yes. Putin will violate that. He would definitely cross that no-fly zone. Then we would have to shoot down the planes. And if so factor, we're now more, you know, so helping people understand these like decisions that they're, that they're often advocating for that they really don't understand. Um, I think that when it comes to nuclear war, you're right. If, if this keeps going unchecked and Putin keeps going and going, if there's a huge fear that this will end up looking like World War II in many ways. It'll keep taking more territory and, and keep gaining power. And that eventually we will have to get involved to stop him. I don't feel like um, we are at that point yet. I think no. what we do right now matters significantly. But if we continue to put these heavy sanctions on Russia, if we continue to fund the war in Ukraine and continue to send weapons, you have to ask yourself, are we in this war already or are we not? Because while I am happy we have not physically entered the war or sent troops in, the reality is that we are already playing in this game and we're playing with fire because I think if Putin does get desperate enough, um, he has no regard for human life. His, his, his oligarchs have no regard for human life. And we could end up in a situation where nuclear weapons are deployed for the first time. And people need to understand how catastrophic that would be. Because while um, the past two, three years, or sorry, two, three decades have seen many conflicts that we've entered, again, they've been so far from home. They, the average American has been so unlikely to know somebody who was involved in those, much less likely to be killed in those. Um, and it makes it feel very far away and like this can't come to our shores, which is absolutely inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's getting scary. You, you know, you've got Israel uh, fighting with Pakistan. You've got now Saudi Arabia and Iran, Iranian tensions uh, gearing up. You've got India is now seems like they're siding with Russia. China's mad at Taiwan. Like this could get really bad. And when I, I, I mean, I was just going through your Twitter right before this interview, just to prepare. And when I saw that, that post, you made about 35% of Americans want us to do more, even if it leads to nuclear war. That made me, the, the first thought that came to my head is we need to throw democracy. Democracy <laughs> needs to go out the window. Like we cannot like, trust our own, our own people. That's it's, mm -hmm. it's asinine. Like either they don't understand what nuclear war means or they're, or they're just dumb. I don't know. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, I just want to add to that. You know, our founders always said that this, this experiment with a quote, quote democracy or a, a constitutional democracy or a constitutional republic, whatever you want to call it would only work if we had an educated populace. And, and I think don't. that we absolutely do not. And, and it is 
cause to be concerned because we see this impacting a myriad of public policies, but certainly when it comes to things as big as war, it's a really big problem that Americans are as uneducated as they are. And you have to trace that back to the indoctrination I think they get in government schools um, over a period of decades that's been intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that takes me to another thing that you advocate for, which is school choice, which I think is awesome that you do that because I don't believe you have kids. So that's amazing that you take on something like that when you don't even have kids. I have kids. I had no idea how bad I come from a family of teachers, my mother and my father, my sister. And I thought public schools were good because I went to them a hundred years ago and you don't know what your kids are learning in public school until COVID hits and they're stuck at home and you see this zoom nonsense and you realize, Oh, the teachers are, are basically tards. Like they're not teaching them really anything. They're, they're, they're terrible. Um, so I, I saw something like 5 million students are now homeschooled. You advocate mm-hmm. for school choice. Larry Elder basically ran his campaign out here on school choice. Maybe he should have ran, run on lockdowns. That might've gotten some more support. doesn't matter, but it's, it's an important issue. Um, is there any possibility of school choice taking hold or is this something government will fight tooth and nail? Yeah, no, I think um, I think COVID really radically changed the game on this. So I started advocating for school choice in 2016. It was a policy issue that the Beacon Center worked on when I was there in Tennessee. Um, and I cared about it. I don't have kids. And I've always said I don't really want kids, but I was homeschooled. My mom got her teaching degree in Alabama when I was young, and she was sort of aghast at how uneducated the other teachers in her program were. She said that one woman who graduated with her was practically illiterate. And so she didn't want to send her her kids to Alabama public schools. And so she made the decision to homeschool us. And so I had this like really lovely childhood that was pretty rare. In the 1990s, I think there was only 800,000 or less kids being homeschooled in the country at that time. It wasn't even legal in all 50 states when I was a kid. But in Kentucky, uh, they were one of the first states to um, legalize it. And we moved there when I was six. So we had this like really wonderful apparatus around us. where We had this huge homeschool group. We had all these co-ops and resources. And it was really kind of ahead of its time. And so I grew up in that environment. And I knew all these myths about homeschooling are false, right? There, there's these perceptions that if you homeschool, you're weird, or you're not extroverted, or you're not articulate, you can't carry a conversation. And nothing could be further from the truth. Homeschoolers tend to be much more outgoing, they can engage with people of radically different ages, they're not indoctrinated to just sit there and talk to a peer. They're really taught to kind of go out into the world and explore and engage with it. Um, and I think it gave me a lot of confidence, because I was always able to really pursue my interests and lean heavily into them. And, and move at my own speed and then get extra help when I was stuck. And so that was my background. And, I, and as I became an adult, I really continued to appreciate it more and more. You know, when I would hear about other people's experience, mm-hmm. I would think, oh my God, little kids sit in a desk from eight to three. Like, yeah, that sounds like jail. Like I would do school for two hours a day and then I was playing outside. You know, when I was doing school, I would be like on my trampoline. So it was just so foreign to me that this was the environment kids came up in. And as I thought about it more and more, it became very obvious to me that this was meant to indoctrinate people so that they were fine uh, doing as they're told, going yeah. and sitting in an office from nine to five, punching a clock. It's really meant to condition you in multiple ways. Um, and so I really am passionate about school choice, even though I don't have kids, because I firmly believe our country can't survive without it. If we don't do something to break these kids out, we're done. So, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned how kids, you know, are expected to sit still eight hours a day. I remember that being absolute torture for me. I learned to cope with it, but it was, it was awful. Like I used to dread it. And a lot of kids are like that. Most kids are like that, but some kids absolutely cannot do it. And if they can't do it, the the decision is not made that, oh, we need to handle this kid in a different way. The decision is made, hey, we need to medicate this kid. Yeah. We need to get this kid doped up. And that's what happens. And that's that's criminal. Now, we would, lo- we would love to homeschool our kids. But the reality in California, the cost of living is so high. We make good money. We make really good money. Yet the cost of living has escalated so much that I would call us like middle, middle class to lower middle class at this point. That's how high the cost of living is out here. We can't afford to get a teacher for our children. But if if you had school choice and we got that tax money back and we could pair with two other um, parents in the neighborhood and get one teacher for six kids, now you're in business. Now you're getting a better education. Um, I, I had something else I kind of wanted to ask you about, but I think you just answered it. And it's, it's that, you know, we don't see a lot of women in the Liberty movement and the libertarian party, much, much less young women. Um, I've, there's just not that many. And I, I was going to ask like what we can do to attract more women. Why don't we attract women? 
Um, and what led you to Liberty? And it sounds like, you know, being homeschooled, that was kind of a natural evolution for you. But how can we speak to women better in this party? Yeah, I often hear people say, and I actually, I talk about this all the time because I'm curious about it as well. But I often hear people say like, oh, libertarian ideas just aren't as attractive to women, which I think is bogus. And I think it's based on really bad gender stereotypes. I think women are every bit as logical as men. And I think libertarian ideas are based on sound data and principles and common sense. We just haven't done a good job of getting in front of them with those messages. And we haven't done a good job about making them feel welcome and comfortable when they do come. I really think I was really lucky with the Libertarian Party I came up with. So when I first was exploring libertarianism and kind of figuring out, to be clear, I was always libertarian. I was a pastor's kid. I hated authoritarianism from that, like hated mm. anything that was going to tell me how to act or how to behave. And so I, but I didn't have a word for it until college. And so when I was first encountering the libertarian movement, I was in Tennessee and Tennessee has, I mean, there's a lot of really great state conventions, don't get me wrong, but Tennessee's party is super exemplary in this, in this way. They have a lot of older people who care a lot about mentoring young people who are very welcoming and uh, who just brought me in with open arms and, and made sure that I not only was comfortable there, but that I was celebrated there and that they, I was getting opportunities to lead and that they were championing me. And I think that made a huge difference. Um, yeah. And I think that that's one thing we need to do when young people start encountering our movement. And this is true for anybody, but especially young people is we need to welcome them instead of like deciding that they have to be a hundred percent with us or they can't participate here. You know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. gatekeeping that happens in libertarianism that oh, drives so much. people away. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing though, that I do think is important is making sure that we have safe environments for women, which there's been some unfortunate news that has come out about different orgs and um, events in our movement over the past couple of years where we know women were not safe and we're not looked out for. And I think that what, what do you mean? Do, I'm, I'm not aware of these things. What happened? Well, there was, you know, the Young Americans for Liberty scandal. Yeah, too. We've had some incidents about people talking about how they were treated at different conventions or events, whether it be sexual harassment, actual sexual assault, or even just um, being spoken to in derogatory kind of ways. And so we've seen women starting to come forward and say some of this. We've seen some women talking about leaving the liberty movement because of some of this. Um, for me, it makes me, I feel like my part for that is to make sure I'm championing younger women. I'm passionate about that, trying to make sure that they, when I'm present, that there's a safe environment for them. And that also that they get access to job openings, they get access to new roles in the movement that they can step into. And I think men can do a part, do the same thing, right? Look out for women at events, make sure they're being uh, treated well and that they're safe. And then look for ways that you can give them opportunities to lead and get more involved. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I think the you mentioned the infighting in the party. It's It's absolutely ridiculous and so annoying like libertarians will agree with each other on 90 percent of things and then they spend all their time talking about the 10 percent that they don't agree on and I, I i think about this and I, I try to understand what that might be and i think by nature libertarians are very independent people and they're a little bit proud of being independent a little bit of kind of like lone wolves take care of myself kind of guy so i think they look to argue sometimes like they enjoy it you know so mm -hmm. they seek that out rather than like here, here's Hannah. I agree with her 95% of the things. Let's, let's build a bridge. Instead, they, they try to tear down a street that, that goes to the 5% where they disagree. Um, and what you're saying about women makes sense. It, that makes sense. Like if women don't feel safe, they're, they're not coming around. I wasn't really aware of stuff like that at the conventions. That's awful. Um, I, I feel like women, it would speak better. Women, women, want to have their children taken taken care of like moms if we're talking about moms right that's their primary concern their children so they tend to be a little more friendly to big government because they think big government is going to take care of their kids so i think we need to do a better job of messaging about things like child care and why liberty is the best path forward for your child i don't think we do a good job on that at all yeah, and I think that's true across the board. So often I see in this movement when people think that there shouldn't be a governmental solution to something, they just don't want to talk about it, right? Like they're, that's mm -hmm. not the answer and we're not working on that. So when it comes to things like childcare, there can be this attitude of like, you have the kids, you should take care of them. And yes, I agree. But does it, how does that help somebody who's struggling with childcare, right? Instead, we need to come in and say, 
here are the actual state solutions that we could look to pass that would bring down the cost of childcare, that would actually remove some of these regulations, that would get rid of these stipulations that have caused it to become so expensive, and really help people see how our ideas not only have solutions for their problems, but actually have better long-term solutions for their problems. And, and it's just laziness that keeps us from doing that, because we have the answers. We do know our policies would work better. We just need to do a better job, again, of becoming tangible with the public policies, becoming really familiar with what they look like in practicality, and, and take it out of the context book and make it something that's a bit more uh, applied and actually something that people can even get involved in, you know, championing different public policies at the state level or at the city councils and giving people an opportunity to show up and lobby for those and raise their voices. That's that's something that I would like to see more from this movement versus just running a presidential nominee every four years or things of that nature. I think that passing some concrete bills at the local Mm -hmm. level would go a lot further. Yes, for sure. And that's, that's the kind of stuff you've done. That's why you've been so effective. That's libertarians absolutely need to get involved in local politics. And, and something that just came to my mind, another thing I saw on your Twitter that applies to this conversation. Uh, we're out here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has passed a bill for like, I don't know, like over a billion dollars for, for, uh, to build housing for homelessness. So mm-hmm. I hear that. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, they're going to rip us off. And this is just a money grab from government to contractors. My wife hears that as a mom, as a person who understands liberty. And she thinks, oh, that's great. My kids will be more safe now because there will be less homeless people on the street. So the messaging is the reason we have homelessness is because of government. So you, it's like they create a problem Then they steal from you to fix the problem Mm -hmm. and they create more problems in the wake. They use every, they use every disaster as a way to steal money and create another disaster. It becomes cyclical. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's actually why I launched my show based a few years ago, because doing all this work at the state level has let me work with people on both the far left and the far right. And I've learned from those interactions that we actually usually agree on many of the problems we're facing. And the reason that we disagree so greatly on the solutions is because most people don't understand what caused those problems in the first place. And so I launched my show so that every month I could take on a big issue that we kind of all agree upon and mm-hmm. really help people comb back through the public policy history mm-hmm. and the economic yeah. factors and show like this is how it got messed up in the first place. And this is why you won't be able to fix this problem with more of what created it, which is the government. Yeah, Yes, you're right. That's exactly what it is. Most people, everybody wants homeless people off the street. Nobody wants people dying on the street because they can't afford a home. We, we need to explain to people, well, why are they homeless in the first place? Why, why mm-hmm. did that happen? Like uh, people on the left will tend to blame, uh, you know, they make these people victims. Okay. Well, they, to a degree, yes, they are victims, but what are they a victim of? Right. Is mm-hmm. it, is it mean corporations or is it the government has created a situation that uh, creates an unplaying, unfair playing field for everybody. So people are destined to become homeless. That's, that's interesting. Like point out how we got to where we are in order to understand how if you, you can't fix a problem if you don't understand how that problem was created. That's kind of what Ron Paul talked about, you know, in 2001 with with our reaction to being attacked on 9/11. Well, if we want to prevent it from happening again, we first need to understand why it happened in the first place. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that that's true for just about every issue that we face. I think Spike Cohen actually did a great job of this on the homeless topic. Um Recently, when this debate came up on Twitter with some libertarians, they're really digging into like, here are the factors that would actually address homelessness, because all of it was in stripping out government programs and and, um, policies that had created these problems, or at least at the very least exasperated them. And if you can help people connect those dots, I think that's more powerful than sitting there and arguing with them on any other front, because uh, you're not really trying to debate like their ethic system or the way they're thinking. You're really trying to be like, did you know the history of this? And once you look at the history of something and you look at the public policy that created it, it becomes kind of undeniable about how these things start all tying together. And if people can see over time that government regulations lead to this, that government corporate welfare leads to this, that government um, banning substances leads to this, then people can start to understand the underlying principles that we have that really do, that would tell you that if you knew like, econ and, and philosophy anyways, but really seeing it tangibly applied, I just think it helps people form a more powerful understanding of what mechanisms create, which outcomes. Yes. And, and again, uh, talking to people in that way is something you, you're going to pick up in, in, in that book you recommended to everybody. Um, I, I remember reading exactly that. Now, on with uh, the economy, the Biden administration, they're now asking Congress for more money to fight COVID. They'll probably get it. If they don't get it, uh, they're probably just 
do some kind of executive order to go around it. Um, and I, I hear economists talking about how we need to do this. And this is another thing where the people will be like, yeah, well, COVID's a problem. We should probably spend money on it, but they don't look at how we got here. Um, I've had a lot of, I've had Gene Epstein on here. I've had a lot of smart economists who like actually understand the economy, not like the ones who are speaking on TV. And none of them sound very hopeful. Um, none of them sound very hopeful about where all this is going. Uh, I know you, you understand economics pretty well. What are you doing to prepare yourself for what's coming? What do you think is coming and what are you doing to prepare yourself? Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm not feeling super optimistic. It's it's not looking good. By the way, Brad Palumbo has a new piece at our website today at base-politics.com um, that's talking about what they did with the money the first go around under the COVID handout. So mm. people should go dig into that because they wasted the money like crazy. Very little of it went to COVID. Um, wasted or stole, you know? Wasted yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, mm. kind of the both. Both the same. Um, this is the last thing they should get is another stimulus program, more trillions of dollars. So it's absolutely obscene. But listen, we libertarians have been warning about this for some time. We cannot just keep spending and spending and printing and printing dollars. I think we're heading right off a fiscal cliff. I think our currency is obviously being devalued every day as we speak. And, and too many people in this country have been fine because the stock market's been fine. And I think a lot of people have been watching that and thinking as long as the stock market stays fine, as long as the housing market stays fine, it's okay. It's going to all even out. It's not going to even out. I think it's gotten out of control. I don't think the Fed can act uh, quickly enough to rein it back in. And I think that we're no. likely heading to a real depression and um, and some economic catastrophes. And, and for me, um, what's so scary about that is, you know, I don't feel like I'm somebody who lives on the margins. I feel pretty comfortable in life. But I, for people who are, and I remember being one of those people who was when I first graduated college, this is a scary time period. You know, even where we're at right now, if I had had to pay $4 a gallon for gas when I was in my first job out of college, it would have mm. broke me. Yeah, <laughs> I would have been, there, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh my God, six out there. Um, yeah, it would have it would have really crushed me. If I was somebody who was trying to feed a family right now with the way grocery bills are, you know, I'm a single person, so I have to start eating out all the time because mm -hmm. it's just cheap. But if you're trying to feed a family, like this, this is what makes me so angry about yeah. the left's policies. Well, they, they want you to eat lentils and bugs. Like that's yeah. that's their that's their new advice. Eat lentils and bugs and take the bus. And get a, <laughs> yeah, get a Tesla. Yeah, get a Tesla. Yeah, we just bought a cow. We bought a cow because yeah. it's a, it's affecting even us because the prices are going up. They're going to go up even more. I'm like, we, we got to do something to save a little money. So either we eat less or we buy in bulk. So we bought a yeah. whole damn cow. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but it is scary. So again, what would you do if you are one of those people to live on the margins? What, what would you do? I don't know that I have great advice for this. I mean, I, I think that it's unfortunately a, a factor that we're all trapped in the system for the time being, that we actually don't have a lot of inroads um, to get out of it. You can't just up and move to another country. You can't just create a new currency. Of course, you know, there's many people who would say buy crypto and start buying into other types of investments. And, and I think that that could be prudent, but I don't know that that's really, um, I feel like we're too far down the road to really like protect ourselves. So there's normal prepper things that people can do, but at this point, you know, it's so expensive to hoard gas and, and food that I'm not sure how much that really saves people. So I don't know that I feel like I'm in a doomsday place where it's going to be, you know, it's the great depression all over again and we can't get food, but I do think we could see a real downturn in the economy. Um, we still have a lot of issues going on with supply chain, with getting mm -hmm. workers into jobs. And, and I think that if we don't really look at creating some policies that incentivize people to go back to work, that open up the borders, let people come here and work for jobs that Americans don't want to take, that get rid of some of these tariffs on our trade, that that push these union thugs out of control and get the ports up and running and quit letting them push people out of work, then we really could have a really stagnated economy that could hurt people on the margins. And what we have to do is learn that these kinds of policies always hurt the people the Democrats claim to stand for the most, right? Mm -hmm. they, and, they, and it's not caring, it's not bleeding heart should not learn economics and continue to push public policies that hurt people. That's actually really uh, unethical and I think corrupt. And I'm, I'm quite frankly sick of them getting away with that. And I think that we need to hold their feet to the fire on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, Democrats and their voters seem to live under the illusion that their party is for the little guy and Republicans live under the illusion that their party is for like the entrepreneur, small businessman. Neither of these statements are even remotely true. Um, you, you read, you wrote something about the shop safe act and I started reading that, but we are coming up against time to start this. What, what is that? 
Yeah, so I've gotten really interested in this whole sort of bubble that I would put under the big tech attack. And what's happening is that both the left and the right right now see an incredible opportunity to go after the free market under the guise of attacking big tech because both sides voters are mad at big tech, right? Mm -hmm. The left thinks that big tech doesn't censor enough and it pushes false news and it gets Trump elected and it's with Russia. And then the right thinks that it censors them all the time and it takes them down. And like, so they all hate it. They all hate it. Yes. But I mean, the right's right on that, right? (laughs) Like, no, not that much, really. If you look at the top platform, I mean, I'm, I'm an example, example of this. If you look at the top platforms that perform on Facebook or Apple podcasts, they're Ben Shapiro, they're Charlie Kirk, they're the Daily Wire, they're Fox News. No, they're not right. censoring in mass. There's, there's right. isolated people are incidents. are consuming that, but the the people that are getting censored are all right wing. I've not heard of anybody on the left getting censored. I mean, I've I've been taken down five times in a year, and I'm hardly on the right. But just for like not saying things that were left friendly, I've not mm-hmm. seen anybody on the left get taken down. Yeah, I don't know if you see them get taken down, but I still would say those are pretty isolated incidents. Like I've been very prolific online for almost a decade and I've never been even remotely censored. So it's a case by case thing. I think some of it depends on if you're crossing their lines on COVID, but also I wrote extensively on COVID and the lockdowns and vaccines all throughout the past year. So I don't know. It's an algorithm problem. It's not perfect. Um, and I'm not going to say there's no issues with it, but I will say that they're private companies and they can they can kick me off if they want. I have no right to their property. Um, I think it's on us to actually build other platforms. That's why Brad and I launched Base Politics. We wanted to have a content hub that we actually own that we can ensure our followers can always find our materials at. And we need to be doing more of that. Yes. Um, when it comes to the public policy sort of bucket that the left and right are kind of partnering together on to quote, quote, go after big tech, there are a lot of really bad ideas in there. There's things that range from very serious free speech violations, like Texas passed a bill saying that their legislators could basically moderate, content moderate the um, the protocols for social media companies, yeah, which is good. just wildly unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had things like um, a lot of antitrust bills that I think are really problematic that are basically coming in and telling companies, unless you behave this way and content moderate in this way, then we're going to take away your liability protection. That's also very unconstitutional. Um, And then you have things like the Shop Safe Act, which is this bill, and you'll see this a lot. You also have one called the Earn It Act. They're both super problematic. Like They're claiming to go after big tech. The Shop Safe Act, they're claiming that it's to go after third-party sellers who put counterfeit goods online. But what you'll notice is that it's backed by all these big brick and mortar retail stores that are having a really hard time competing with online stores. And the way they've structured this bill is to basically say, unless third party platforms, so like say Etsy, hands over their consumer data and proves that they're meeting the government standards for ensuring there's not counterfeit products on their platforms, they'll lose liability protections. And so it's this very corrupt bill. It's what we call regulatory capture and economics, where essentially big business partners with big government to create really onerous regulations that stomp out their competition. And this is what it would do. It would make it really hard for smaller third-party sellers to operate online, to bear the cost of this. And it would make them hand over the uh, data of their consumers, which is a huge issue for anybody who cares about privacy. So it's really problematic. We've also seen the Earn It Act is a similar bill where they're basically trying to uh, force online platforms to search for people's um, without a warrant to go into their information without a warrant to break down encryption and provide information to the government um, on behalf of like different kinds of prosecutions. And so what's problematic with that is not only is it a Fourth Amendment violation, it actually could end up getting these cases thrown out of court because if you're using third parties to circumvent getting a warrant, Say you have somebody who has like a serious claim of child porn against somebody, but they're using a third party to get that data that could then lead to that data actually getting thrown out in court because they violated the Fourth Amendment. So it's got multiple problems within it. But this is the kind of thing we see. And all of these bills have both Republicans and Democrats on them. So they're they're equally um, complicit in this. And, it, and they're just all really bad ideas that hurt the free market, hurt individual liberty. And, and I think that people need to be really wary of what these lawmakers are doing under the guise of going after big tech. Yes. A a free market is the ultimate solution. And it'd be great if we had a free market. We don't have a free market. I agree with you. And you say like, we need to start building our own platforms. That's the, that's the best solution. That's what I love about crypto is uh, that the blockchain allows for like decentralized uh, social media and whatnot. Um, But until we get there, um, 
these companies now, and yes, it's their companies and they should be able to do whatever they want because it's their company, but they're not working independently. They're working in conjunction with, it seems to me, the the government, they're taking direction from the Biden administration. Like you, you brought up COVID. That's what I got banned for all five times was having doctors come on my show and talk about COVID in a way that the government did not agree with. And that's, mm-hmm. that's ridiculous. They label it disinformation. Then I got labeled a uh, Russian disinformation one time for the Hunter Biden story. Um, so they're, they're working with government. So it's no, we're not talking about free market and they, they are acting as publishers. Like they're determining what gets on their site, what does not get on their site. So if you're acting as a publisher, you should be liable for everything. This is my opinion. If you're acting as a publisher and you're telling certain people, they can't put on certain things, then you should be liable for everything on your site, which of course would crush them. So the only better alternative is to regulate them like the phone company. The phone company doesn't ban anybody. Anybody can get on there, use the service, call anyone they want. That's how I feel that social media websites should be, they should be treated like utilities. So I want to push back. I want to push back a little bit. Um, The publisher platform distinguishment is not exactly as you said. So basically right now, if Facebook were to publish something, it were to put out an editorial, it were to put out any kind of statement, it would be held liable for that as a publisher because that is what it would be saying. It is not liable simply for what other people may come and write on its platform. And that was determined under Section 230 in the 1990s which is actually a really simple bill people can go read. There's been a lot of misinformation put out there about it, especially by Trump and his ilk. Um, But essentially all it did was say that the First Amendment will apply online. Now, if you didn't have Section 230, the First Amendment would still apply online. You still would likely not be liable for things other people write online. That doesn't make any sense. But what you would see is a lot of frivolous lawsuits that would come out. And we have a really terrible structure of a court system in this country, where in most countries, what you see is if you sue somebody and you lose, you then have to pay their legal fees. In America, we don't have that. So if you sue somebody frivolously and you lose, that person still might be out thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. So everybody sells or you crush, you crush small upstarts who cannot afford those legal fees. And so what they did was basically say, we have this new economic frontier. We want to make sure that it doesn't bog down our courts. We want to make sure that new companies don't get bogged down in these frivolous lawsuits, even though likely they'd win. Um, And so they wrote Section 230 to basically reaffirm that the First Amendment says what the First Amendment says. And it's functioned as that for, you know, 30 years. And it's been a good law. And it's been really maligned, I think, by people who have disingenuous intentions and who want to see the government be able to do more content moderation and tell companies more what to do. And that's what we see in many of these antitrust bills. They're saying that very thing. You moderate like this you behave like this, you give us this information, or we take away Section 230. That's super corrupt. It's a violation of of the First Amendment. Um, And what we see these companies doing is that they don't ever actually, the government doesn't have to actually come in and write a law or actually regulate them. They just threaten them and say, you do this or we take away this protection. And then companies go, oh my God, God, okay, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And they fall back. Is the company at fault there? No, the government's at fault. And so what we should see lawmakers doing is coming in and actually going after the government and going after the Biden administration and saying, you don't get to tell private companies how to do content moderation. But because Congress is a total failure and not doing their job, um, there's nothing these companies can do because there's no law to sue over. There's no regulation to sue over. If there were, they would have a First Amendment violation, a clear and an easy one. But the way it's functioning is so like behind the scenes that they don't really have a legal leg to stand on. And so they're actually in a rock and a hard place. I don't I'm no defender of all big tech's practices. I don't like how they how they run their programs a lot of the time and a lot of the content decisions they make. That being said, the the problem lies still in the government and these kinds of threats that they do behind the scenes that then force companies to come in and regulate and behave in a certain way. It's not free market capitalism. It is a violation of civil liberties. And and really, I would like to see people who are concerned with big tech practices instead go after the government for these things instead of trying to come in and say, let's make Facebook a public utility. I don't want a government public utility social media experience. That sounds terrible. Like yes. I don't think we'd see no. any innovation in 100 no, years. No, definitely don't want that. <laughs> no, definitely don't want that. No, not at all. all. All I was suggesting is that they should they should be required to behave like a phone company and not be able to do any content moderation. But I I get your point. Um and yeah, I agree with you in ways because look, uh the the CEO of uh Twitter, 
uh, was Jack Dorsey. We've seen since he's left Twitter. He's not really the guy he seemed while he was at Twitter. He seems a lot more like a libertarian now. So you can see he was kind of he was bullied into some of the positions I think Twitter took. And that's that's coming from the government. So we definitely don't want to give government more control over the social media companies. That's a definite no. That will end like everything that government gets more control over. It will end poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. We're coming up on time. I, I really appreciate having you. I, I do love your show, Base Politics. Everybody, please go check out Base Politics. It's a great show. Uh, Hannah and Brad, they get, they have they have great chemistry. Um, we're working with Brad. Like, how do I ask this question? So you typically, when I see a show where there's a, a, a an attractive girl and a guy, there's always this like under underneath sexual tension that kind of overpowers the show. Being that Brad is not in your wheelhouse, there's none. <laughs> there's none of that there. So that's out of the way, and it's it's more like it's just more about the thing that it's about. Um, are you, are you conscious of that? Was that, did that go into your decision-making at all? Have you, have you had other co-hosts and it's been different? Yeah, no, he's the only co-host I've ever had. And Brad and I started working together. We actually met on Twitter back in 2020 and we've just had this very natural synergy. We see eye to eye on a lot of things. And when we differ, I just feel like we, we have these really robust debates that help me think, help him think. And, um, what basically over the course of time, we just kind of became of the mindset that people would like to listen to our conversations that, you know, mm-hmm. these kinds of discussions are things people might benefit from and, and getting to kind of work through things as we do with each other is a good thing because yeah. we feel like we become stronger, um, in our mentalities because of it and, and more well-rounded and, and, and we'd like to see more people do that. So for us, it was a very natural, um, transgression to become co-host because we were already like doing this every day on the phone anyway. <laughs> so it's kind of easy to move it to podcast format. But yeah, it is funny because oftentimes people will think Brad and I are either a couple or that we're siblings. And <laughs> I had um, one person at the Tennessee convention tell me last week that their sister started listening and was like, let me know if Hannah and Brad break up. He's hot. And he was like, sweetie, oh he my is, God. <laughs> it's not your type. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's not going to go for it. So yeah. we've got, it's funny. We've got a lot of people that thirst after Brad in the audience, but, um, but no, I think it's, it's been a really fun dynamic. I think, um, both Brad and I are in interesting positions. Like you don't see that many women in the Liberty movement. And I still think you don't see that many people outside um, the left wing on the LGBTQ circuit. And so being able to come together and kind of bring our minority experience yes. um, in this realm is, is something that I think is really interesting. And I hope we both really hope it's something that makes more people in those sectors feel comfortable and attracted to the movement. Absolutely. Like just how I said earlier, how we need to attract more women to the party. We need to attract more of everything except straight white guys like me. Like that's <laughs> feels like we're my demographic is about 75% of the party. So, so what you and Brad are doing is awesome. Like bring them all in. Like if we want to make any real change, we need to get all of them in the bucket. You guys are doing a great job of that. Um, last question. You're young. You've already done big things. Uh, what do you want to accomplish? Like, what is your ultimate vision? Are you going to run for office someday? Do you, is there some big change you have your eye on? What are you hoping for? Yeah, I'm currently really focused on building out base politics. I strongly believe that independent journalism is the way of the future. And having gotten as much done as I have in the public policy realm and in the pro bono litigation realm, I know exactly how important the media is to getting wins. I know exactly how much it matters, especially when you come down to the wire. And so we really want base politics to be an asset to the movement, to be an asset to people who are doing the real work on the ground to make sure it's getting elevated and the attention that it deserves, helping to educate people about the public policies going on around them, um, giving people ways to get involved, and then also making sure that we're creating jobs for younger content creators who are coming up beneath us and making sure that they have places to come and create, that they know that their things won't be taken down, that they have a platform to reach new audiences and that we can help elevate other voices. Because ultimately what we need is, you know, a hundred me and Brad's running around this movement and, and working to reach younger people on various issues. So that's really what I'm focused on. We're, and, and we're really excited. Base Politics really just formally uh, launched about three months ago and we've gotten, you know, 350,000 views on the website already. So we'd like to keep okay, expanding so, that. So, so educate me a little bit. Um, do you, when you say you, you own it, um, did you build out the infrastructure of it or is it like running on Amazon? Like how, how is it built? Yeah, it's a website content creation hub right now, based And then we also have the podcast network, which is on Apple and, and various other, pretty much every other podcast platform there is, but we want to keep it driven by independent journalists. And so 
base politics is the content hub where everything will live, but we'll have lots of personalities working under base politics and we'll continue to elevate various people's social media channels. And so it will never be dependent on one stream. You'll never see base politics be able to just be wiped off Twitter because base politics is going to be dozens of us um, who are out there doing the work. So we feel like it's a a way around it. And then also we we do own the website. Now we don't own the servers, obviously, but we we have a bit more control over a website, over an email list, over our local channel than Mm -hmm. we do over a Facebook page or a Twitter channel. Awesome. I, I tried to do something exactly like you guys were doing about 15 years ago. It was called Naked Word Surfer. I nice. did it for about two years. We grew it out and then it collapsed. It's hard to do. Um, you guys are the people who can get it done. You've gotten other things done. I have great faith. You guys will get it done. I look forward to big things from base politics. Share your Twitter handle and where else people can find you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. People can find me at Hannah D. Cox on Twitter and, and on most platforms. Um, they can find me on Facebook at Hannah Danielle Cox 7. I'm all over the place. I'd love to connect with folks. And again, the website is a great resource. It's base-politics.com and they can find all of our various content uh, and creations there. So check it out. We'd love to connect with you. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. 